this this video has become so popular it's just written with ads. The video is called Seattle is Dying, showing the effect of homelessness in Seattle. And uh, it's quite some journalism on this. It shows the controversy and the difficulty going on in Seattle over the issue of homelessness and what to do with it. And the bottom, well, I'll wait two minutes before I start. <laughs> There has evolved a profound disconnect, and rarely has it been more vividly laid out over this exchange. If property crime is committed, if violence is committed, you need to call 911 and the police. You lost all credibility when you say, you said two words, you said call 911. Do you understand that the police have told us that they can do their job? You're telling me what? I do. I really do. You think it's funny? You think it's funny the way we're living? The way we're living. Beautiful Seattle. People are angry, furious about the way we are living. Okay, I'm going to stop it here. And I'd like to thank you for coming to the class this morning. And some of the folks here are dear friends of mine, the Carnes family here, and uh, Denise and Kevin, and then their lovely daughter, Jessica, and their other daughter, Katrina, is also on campus. I've known them for years, and hopefully Kevin and I will get a chance to go surfing while we're here. He brings up a surfboard uh, for me, and he's so gracious. I surf the Oregon coast, but I generally do it on a paddleboard, and I'm not used to any crowds. I have the place to myself, really. Around here, it's, wow, <laughs> lots of people. And then we have some wonderful people here from uh, Mozambique, Africa. Is that right? And um, can you tell us who you are? Um, we're a missionary family in Africa. Um, our parents have been there for 15 years. You bet. And so two different families here. Is that right? I'm Abby Holland. I'm Ellie. This is Katie. This is Abby, Ali. Ellie. And Katie. And what's your name? Andrew Smith. Andrew and Smith. Okay, so you two. Well, thank you so much for coming. And why are you guys here in this class? It's interesting, and we, we might learn something that's useful. You bet. Work. Sure. Well, thank you so much. What a nice treat to have you. And this young man here is from Birmingham, Alabama. And your first name again? Jackson. Jackson. And we've got Sarah, who's a student here, and also Ryan. Thank you so much. And Sarah, where did you grow up at? Um, in Fort Worth, Texas. You bet. And then Ryan here is right, uh, right above uh, Santa Barbara. And so he's got a great life going to school in Malibu and living in Santa Barbara, basically. And who do we have back here? Heather. Heather. I'm local. I live in El Segundo by LAX. Oh, how nice. Well, well, good to have you here. And then uh, we just met Mary here. <clears throat> and uh, my wife spent time with her. And this is my lovely wife, Wendy. And Wendy's a wonderful lady. We've been married 34 years this Saturday. And, wow. and, and, and then we have Susie here, and I got to talking to Susie this morning. We had one of those divine uh, connections, and Susie has a class here on Thursday at 9.45, and will you tell everyone, do you mind standing there for a minute, telling everyone what your class is about? Uh, just briefly, my class is about that the church has everything divorcing people need. Now, I know divorcing people, that's kind of a touchy subject. People don't know what to do with us. 
but they, uh, and I thought some of my radical women, radical means rising above divorce and confidence and love, but a lot of women going through divorce uh, end up homeless, living in their car, or people, they're just left with nothing, so we had a great conversation this morning, but I'm going to be talking about that, just what the church can do for people who are struggling through divorce. It's awesome. She's written a book. She's written all the work materials. She has a 10-week class, and it uh, provides the support and healing, I, believe, I think, the healing of when they go through it. And she's gone through it herself. She's gone through a divorce, and she has four children, is that right? Mm -hmm. And uh, she tells her story. It's powerful. And I think the most exciting thing about what Susie's doing is her passion for it. And she is excited. You can tell. And if she had two lifetimes to live, she would live another lifetime very intentionally about doing everything she can do to affect art. And she's talking to me about maybe there's uh, the men need to get involved in this because there need to be a recovery for men. But it's a little harder there, huh? Okay, well, I'd like to thank everyone for coming this morning. This is really the first class. And then after today, after this morning, for those who are going to go downstairs, there's going to be a rabbi speaking. And I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say after the shooting. Wasn't it down here in Los Angeles at a synagogue? This is San Diego, San Diego. Poway. There you go. Oh, that's right, in Poway. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, I'm very interested in what he's going to have to share. And just the whole thing that's going on with our Jewish, seems like um, the Jewish population once again is getting more persecuted and, um, and attacked, and so I'm very interested in that. So um, this particular class has to do, I, I'm calling it the final exam, but it has to do with homelessness. And let me give you from this perspective, Wendy and I have lived, been privileged to live in a small town. What I mean by small is 3,500 people. And then we have another town of 3,000 right next to us, which is not incorporated, but shares the same zip code. And then we have two little towns of 1,000. So we live in a community of 10 to 15,000 people, and then you have to go 15 to 20 minutes to get to Roseburg. And Roseburg's going to have twice as much or three times as much. So we live in a fairly small community. It's a logging community, and since the, the um, struggle between the environmentalists and the logging community, our economy has been pretty well shot because everything in our economy has been based on timber. And timber is, will never be like it was when they were clear-cutting this, cutting this, and so forth like that. So we're more of a bedroom community for Roseburg. We've been privileged to be with the church for 30 years. We have four kids. And I've gotten involved in a lot of different areas in our community. Um, whether it's the YMCA or politically, I was on city council and I became the mayor of our little town. So I got kind of a heads up on what's going on in our town in Douglas County. Um, and Wendy and I lived in a house that we raised our kids in about a mile from town, the downtown core area. And when our kids grew up, we had one that actually came to Pepperdine. And... Um, um, our son came here and graduated in 12, so we got one Pepperdine alumni. And we have one George Fox, one Harding, and then one a, com a number of schools that they've um, gone to. So all of recognize so we sold our house, and Wendy has a bed and breakfast in a tea room right downtown called The Painted Lady. Wendy runs an awesome business. And it's right there on I-5, and uh, um, the southern part of Oregon, right off of I-5, but it's not 
a destination location, so people usually stop and then go. So it's not like being at the coast where people are gonna stay there for a number of days. But Wendy's done a great job. So we sold our house and we moved to our business in this little apartment. So I live right downtown, which is a small town. But this year in February, we had what we called a snowocalypse. We had a snowstorm that just wiped out our whole community. And it was not predicted. And so as we're downtown there, we have people out of power. We have people obviously out of electricity, so out of heat, and they don't have hot water. So our house become a meeting place because our power came on first right at the downtown core area. We're out in the, in the boonies. They didn't get it for weeks. So our house became a hub for people needing a shower, needing somewhere warm, and so forth like that. So our location downtown makes the topic of this class uh, really something special because our park is the nicest park in all of Douglas County. And we're one of the smaller towns in Douglas County, but our park system is so nice. Our town does a great job running the parks. And so when um, I go to the parks, which is my backyard, I walk, and then I teach a martial art called Tai Chi. And I teach down at the park. And we do it three times uh, a week. And we do it, in fact, this morning, I was at a, a yoga Tai Chi class right down at Alumni Park here today. And it'll be going on tomorrow and also Friday. So um, I'm down at the park every day. So I see the people at the park. And guess who's down at the park? the homeless and um, they're either people that I don't know that are just passing through and stay for a while or they're people that I do know who many of them were raised with my kids so I'm at a small town living downtown just minutes from our local park and that's, if you're going to be homeless, you're going to be homeless down at our park because it's such a nice park. And so that is the setting for this class. So this first video I showed you, Seattle is Dying, is about homelessness in a big city. Now my dear friend Jim Roberts is here in the back. And Jim has been in Portland for much of his life and also went to school in Eugene. And they have, a, they have camps. Is there a camp for homeless people where you live? Are there places designated by the city? There is John. This John, this, he's from Colorado. I went to school uh, in the same town he grew up in. And um, well, in our, you know, in Roseburg, um, there's really no camp, but underneath bridges, out in uh, <clears throat> the old part of town, there is a homeless situation there, and there's struggle between the people that are trying to run the businesses and the people that are homeless. And in this video, Seattle is Dying, you should watch that because it shows the struggle between what to do with the homeless population in a community. Now, where you guys are in Mozambique, do you have a big homeless community? Not really? How about in different parts of the town? Can you see parts of the town where it's more, uh, there's more financial resources and more that are less? Dan, the, where they're from, Mozambique, what they consider homeless, what we would consider homeless, they don't consider homeless. So yeah. they, they build they build shacks and areas and they and they stay they live there and there's churches there and 
it's 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 not the same, not the same. context. It's 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 a comparable though, right? Because it's not their own land; it's not their own, right? And they're there kind of illegally, right? It's a little bit different context. But there, there there is, in a sense, a lot of homeless and sure in Mozambique. Sure. Can I say that? Yeah. 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 And what's that? We have a lot of that in our community, mm -hmm. especially out in the country areas, out in the highways and the byways. So this is looking at, uh, we're going to be looking at, at the final exam in this class. I think we'll go till, uh, what do we have, till 9.15? And um, it's interesting as you look at Paul, uh, we're pretty much fascinated with Paul because he's one of a kind, right? He's not an apostle. Uh, originally uh, with the 12, but he's chosen as one, one untimely born to be an apostle. And when he received his calling, uh, Ananias, God spoke through Ananias to Paul, and he was to show him how much he must suffer for, his, for my name. And of course, Paul did in a way that most of us will never suffer. Now, some in some Middle Eastern country and different places, obviously, persecution is on the rise. Is there parts of Africa that you are familiar with that there's persecution going on? Uh, yeah, there was some shootings north of where we were. It was a little far away, but we heard about it. Yeah, I bet you guys hear about it, pray about it, huh? Yeah, we pray about it, we hear about it. A friend of mine that's speaking for me this Sunday, he has. He's our age, Wendy and our age. They have just, in the last two years, adopted 10 kids and are trying to adopt the 11th. And the, the foster care system is trying to prevent this couple from getting this kid because this, they believe this kid has homosexual uh, leanings or leanings towards being gay and the foster system doesn't want is concerned about this couple getting this kid because they know, their organization know they're Christian. So it's persecution in a different way. So they're struggling on that right now. So the Apostle Paul is an interesting one to look at because of his life and his struggle. One of my favorite passages is in Ephesians 4, uh, 3.14, where Paul says, I just love this passage. It has to be one of my favorite in the New Testament. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before my Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth has derived its name. And I pray that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, I love this, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith, and you being rooted and grounded with all the saints, may be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the length and the breadth and to know the love of God which surpasses understanding. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. We all said, Amen. Amen. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament. So I'm not down on Paul. I love Paul like you. I love his writings and I believe they're inspired. But out of Paul, we get some of the biggest controversies in the church. We get the controversy of music, which has been horrible 
for our fellowship. It has just decimated. It has closed the doors on so many people that are artistically motivated, and it's simply because I think we misunderstand Paul, or we so wrangle over words, and we miss the whole emphasis of what this whole topic of music is about. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. The, the pattern of elders, it is absolutely ridiculous to have a pastor or a preacher who is full-time in ministry, who could be qualified to be an elder, but not made an elder simply because he receives financial payment from the church for his work. So they don't make him an elder. Why? Often to keep him under the thumb of the elders. It's absolutely ridiculous. Paul never taught that. Paul is, is misinterpreting. The topic of women and the struggle about what is cultural and what is scriptural, that comes out of Paul's writing. We have people in our church here where we live that um, obviously take, uh, take communion with one cup or multiple cups. And then some people didn't feel you could do it on uh, Sunday morning and you had to do it on Saturday night. Uh, and then they didn't have enough people at their church on Sunday morning and their preacher could not make it Sunday morning, so they had church on Sunday night. And then, so they weren't even doing it according to their own definition of when they were gonna do it. And then now they've got, they just split themselves to. When I got to Myrtle Creek, there were 15 Churches of Christ Christian churches within 25 miles of each other. And the only thing they had in common was throwing arrows and spirit at each other. Ridiculous. The name of the church, Church of Christ, Romans 16, 16. Paul said, the churches of Christ salute you. But he didn't mean a label. It's in the genitive of, of, uh, of, of not participle, but uh, the use of speech. And it means the churches that belong to Christ. It's not about wearing a label. And the second coming of Christ, Peter says about Paul's writings that some of those things are hard to understand, Paul's writings. And so if you were to ask me, what is my belief about the second coming? I would say, well, I think some people believe this, and I think some people believe this. And I think that um, there's a lot of validity to a lot of different views on the second coming. I'm not completely sure because uh, of, of, of how it's going to be and what it's going to be like and the resurrection and exactly. So these are all controversial things within this man I love, writings, and how we've interpreted that. And we could list dozens more where people have fought over Paul's writings. But you know what? Who fights about what Jesus said? Not very many people. And when you go to Matthew 25, and you look at what uh, he says there regarding, let's see, I have my Bible. Right here. Okay, thank you. Matthew chapter 25, let's go there. And he says that in this uh, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, are speaking of what we, confer, what we refer to as the second coming, and some refer to as the destruction of Jerusalem. He says when, I'm in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to drink, eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it, what? For me. Now, that to me is the final exam. And the cool thing about the final exam here, he not only gives you the, the answers to the final exam, he gives you the the questions. He tells you what he's going to ask you. Notice, he does not tell you whether you're instrumental or acapella. Notice, he doesn't tell you whether you baptize by sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. Notice he does not tell you what name of the church that you put over the church building. Notice he doesn't tell you whether there's two elders, one elders, five elders. He doesn't say anything about that. Notice he doesn't say whether you take communion Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Monday night, or Tuesday night. Notice he does not tell you whether it's multiple cups or one cup. Notice he does not tell you whether you support an orphan, or you support widows through a missionary society, an orphanage, like Herald of Truth, through certain ways, or if you bring orphans into your house. I just want you to notice what the Bible says, what Jesus says. We would rather fight over Paul than actually be concerned about the final exam. Do I have beliefs about a cappella and instrumental? You bet I do. I'd love to talk to you about them. Do you, I have beliefs about immersion. Well, yeah, I've been baptizing, privileged to baptize ever since I've been a Christian. Do I think the name Church of Christ is a cool name? I sure do. King of kings and Lord of lords, that's a good name. Do I believe in the plurality of elders? I sure do. So it's not that I've changed my belief on any of these things. It's about not majoring in the minors. So, there's the final exam, what Jesus spoke about, and that's what we should be giving, I believe, our major uh, importance to. So it's the hungry, it's the thirsty, the naked, the sick, or in the jail. And so our discipleship of disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples, I think, like me, uh, I wasn't raised in the church, and it's not a bragging point, it's actually a sad thing, I would have rather have been raised as a Christian than raised going the crazy route I did. But often these people, when they do come to Christ, and if they do have a conversion, they will have a beautiful uh, testimony to, to share. And Jesus says that you have done it to me. So in our community, here's how it goes. Um, living downtown where I do in Myrtle Creek, I've been privileged to connect with some people at our local park, and they almost always have a couple things in common. They need medical care, and so they need someone to help them connect with 
resources to get the care that they need. The first thing is they need is food. And so it's very convenient for me to bring food down to the park because I live basically down in the park. So first thing we start to do is start bringing food down. And um, Wendy and I like oatmeal and we pick uh, about 125 pounds of blueberries a year. And so um, if you're a part of our homeless ministry, you get oatmeal with blueberries. And they love warm oatmeal because it's been pretty cold in Myrtle Creek this year. And so uh, with that cold weather, they're looking for something warm. So we bring food down to them. And then the second thing they usually need is a shower. And they can come up to our place and use our shower. We have a little 700-foot studio apartment, and we have a shower in there. And so we bring them up and give them a place to shower, and then we have a washer and a dryer. And if the clothes are really bad, it hasn't been that bad yet, but we've got one guy we're going to try to bring up named um, Joshua. And if I get his clothes, I'm going to probably go to the laundromat because he says, you probably don't want my clothes in your washer and dryer. So we'll go to the laundromat and wash the clothes there. And, um, but so food, shower, and clothes. And then the second thing is this guy named Joe. In, in the last year, we helped two guys get off the streets. And it takes a long time to do that. Joe, I've known him for 30 years since I've been in town because I lived across the street from his dad. And uh, his dad has passed away. Obviously, we moved from that street, we moved downtown. But Joe, raised his daughter on the streets. His daughter is uh, a drug user, and uh, every child that she's had has been taken away in some foster care. And Joe uh, doesn't function probably with um, all the resources he was born with, and I don't know if it's through past drug use or not. I imagine that it was, but I don't know. But I know this last summer when I saw him in Myrtle Creek, I said, Joe, He's sitting across the street from our house there. And I said, what are you doing in Myrtle Creek? I see him periodically. He says, I'm homeless. And I said, you're homeless? His dad's gone. His stepmom's gone. His half-sister's, he's burned the bridges there. And I said, well, where are you staying? And subsequently, since I've seen him, he's had a brain surgery. And so he's not drinking. He's not doing drugs. He calls his ex-wife his wife, but their next wife, he can't remember if they're divorced or not. His daughter is using drugs. She's pregnant. She was pregnant. I said, Joe, where's your ID? I mean, let's get some help for you. You have Social Security, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do have Social Security. That's right. Okay, where's your ID? I don't know. I lost it. Do you know how hard it is to get a person ID if you don't have ID? you know how hard it is to get a birth certificate if you don't have ID? It's like you have to have a birth ID to get a birth certificate. I said, you're kidding. He was born on an army base down in Texas. And so it took the longest time, but I found if you have the right resources, we in our area we have a UCAN, a, an organization called UCAN, and we have a lady there named Erica on UCAN, and she is fully invested in her work. And when I met her, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Because that lady can get things done. I said, I can't get some ID for this guy because he has benefits coming to him. And so the first thing we started to do is work on his ID. It took months to get ID for this guy. 
So, and then I took him in to Social Security and I brought him in and everyone said, hey, Joe's here. And I said, you guys know Joe? They have a security officer there in front of Social Security. Yes. And Joe, your check is across the street at the church. The church my wife goes to a Bible study at. I said, Joe, where are we at here? Well, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot. So I went across the street, spent some time with the administrative pastor, and of all the people that they've ever tried to help, Joe was the only one that they let use the church address to get his social security checks. But Joe was living at his ex-wife's house full of drug users. And so they found ways to get his little uh, debit card and get his pin because they're going to get, you know, food for Joe, right? So they take all the money out of his account and then they would try to get his new card. There are so many people out there to manipulate people who are disabled or are, or are mentally challenged to get their money. So we found two new cards that people had ordered in his name at the Baptist church and every account was emptied. Gosh, who are these people stealing from people like that? So. And it wasn't the church, it was the family. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, the, it was the, family. the family. So we ended up getting Joe, check this out, back at his ex-wife's house to get him off the streets. It took months. And his ex-wife said, he's welcome to stay here. And she's a sweet lady. And she is worn and torn, worn out through drug use. So I would go up there every week. We would go out and buy food. Of course, anytime we buy food, everyone at the house would take his food. And she would do everything she can to try to protect his belongings. But there's so much drug use there. But I thought, okay. So over a period of time, we got him off the streets. All right? So one step at a time. Get his ID, work through DMV, work through Erica. We worked, uh, the county clerk is a friend of Wendy's and ours. And so we got, you got to have a home address in order to get ID. My goodness. So we got a home address. He couldn't remember the right name. They wouldn't send it. This all takes months. And you got to just stay with the person, stay with the person. And then um, for Joe, uh, Erica came into our life from UCAN. And Erica found, got, we got his... Uh, evaluation by the state of where he could stay and what he's qualified for so we got him in a group home and he got him in the best group home with five other men and then they care for him take him to church and um, then uh, we just called last week and he's been moved to another home because of his some of his uh, challenges mentally to remember but it was my first real introduction to help person get off the streets in the process and so it took about six months to get it done in regular contact. Any of you have any stories like that to help a person get off the street like that? Been through that? Well we we, uh, we had a cooperative thing in Seattle with uh, the Christian Church. Uh, I don't know anybody knows Seattle but it was right down from Pike's Place Market and uh, called Penile Mission, and uh, I was going to preach there. This was years ago. Yeah. And uh, uh, I parked by the market, and then uh, 
walked in. It's kind of downtown Seattle. And uh, I stopped at a store to get a pop. And when I came out, there was a so 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 were, you, Native so, so were you able to help a person over a period of time yeah, to well, get it Anyway, let me finish it. There, yeah. there was a tall Native American. He was drunk. Yeah. And um, he asked me for money. He was, and he was asking the girls to go on a date. And, you know, and then I said, no, I'm not going to give you money. I went down and I was preaching. He comes barging in and had to kick him out. Sure. But uh, they started studying with him next time they saw him when he was sober. And three months later, he was baptized. Ah. And he did the same thing when he moved in with a group of Christians. And then I saw him five years later. And he had been living under a bridge in Seattle. You bet. And I saw him five years later. He had a job and he was still going to church. He had a, had a long service. So, you but bet. This is, after, this is after like 25 people that, he, that you know, just kind of disappeared. Exactly. He, he stayed with the program, went through there. And did you stay with him for a period of time to? I didn't, I didn't work with him that much. Sure. Very much at all. Well, well my somebody, other people did, but it was a, it was a success. I mean, it was somebody you'd think this guy's never going to. Never going to do it, huh? Change. Yeah. A number of people in our local town that are homeless, um, they get benefits. And one of the things that I ask them, I ask them, do you want to live on the streets? And guess what? Many people do. They want to live on the streets. You think they really do? Yes. Well, what's their, what's their reasoning for wanting to stay on the Don't have to, I can do what I want to do and I don't have, for example, I got a guy named Mike. I've known him for years. He's on the streets in Myrtle Creek. Okay. And really, it's, it's, he says, my parents, he's my age or a little younger, although he looks quite a bit older. His parents live a mile away. For years, he would come in town, stay most of the week, and then go up to a different part of, uh, of our community, stay with his parents. But his addiction became so out of hand that the parents didn't want him at the house. So he's living, getting benefits, and living <laughs> homeless. So maybe the, he, they want to drink or do drugs, and they know they can't do those unless they're on the streets. Exactly. Exactly. And, and for Mike, it's, it's yeah, there's this, there's drinking, and there's smoking pot. He says he doesn't do meth. I believe everyone. Yeah. I mean, I just say, okay, you don't. Okay, that's how it is. And he stays to himself, but um, I can tell he's cold. And I can hear him, when I'm walking away from the house, I can hear him groaning. I can hear a number of people. And they're, they're in pain. We got one young guy, and I can hear him blocks away, and he's crying out, and he's he's hurting, and it's like, okay, what can I do to help him? I can bring him some food and help him to get warm. I can offer him a shower, because over a period of time, maybe I can build a relationship with him, and maybe if we can build a relationship and there's some trust, maybe we can help them. And so Mike is down there, Joshua's down there, but I want to tell you about Larry. Larry's a guy that grew up in our church. He's a foster kid. And he's 35 years old. And he went to school with my kids. My oldest one, but he's a little bit older than her. And I know the family very well. 
Larry, when I met his wife, when he was in his 20s, I was thrilled. I said, Larry, what a wonderful lady. I was so, he was living down in Sacramento and he came back up to Oregon for a particular event. And I met her and I just said, Larry, you got it going on. And then they had a child and the child was just like him. I was so thrilled. And then about a year and a half ago, I see him in town and he is so drunk. And I was moving, we were having a garage sale to help uh, a mission in Haiti. And he, I said, Larry, what's going on? I said, Larry, are you okay? And he says, Dan, what do you need help with? And I mean, he just helped me with tables. He just, and um, I found out from other people in town that he had lost this job and lost that job, and he was living out in a tent. And then I'd see him post things on Facebook, and he was out in a tent. But by the time of that, he was literally living under the bridge, which was a pretty good sight, actually, if you're camping. Beautiful sight of the South Umpqua River, and pretty nice in the summer. And we had that long summer. And so Larry is able-bodied, but he's an alcoholic. And I mean, he is a destructive alcoholic. And so his wife, he lost his wife. He lost his rights to his daughter. He lost all of his money. He lost all of his family, so to speak. He lost all of his friends. And he moved back in town. He's living under a bridge. Well, my neighbor is an employer and has a construction company that's grew from three or four people to now in the 30s. They have 30 some odd employees, my next door neighbor. And so I was able to say, um, I was able to say, I got a guy, he's, he's got alcoholic problems, but he's able to work. And I don't know how long he can keep the job, and being that I know this guy in the way that I know him, he gave him a job. And he worked that job he would miss probably at least once a week or once every other week, and then usually two days. And he would have some sort of a lame excuse. I said, it's, it's alcoholism, I tell the employer. And um, it's, I mean, I believe his excuse, but I think it's alcoholism. I mean, if he says his head hurt, I think it's because if he said he didn't feel good if he had the flu or whatever, and I wasn't cynical about it. It's just how it was. You just know that you know. And um, you know, one of the first things I did when I became a Christian in 1980 is I give up saying the F word. I used to say the F word so much. F this, F this. I was talking to my mom. I couldn't even believe how much I said the F word. Well, about the only times that I ever say the F word is when I golf. And I hardly ever golf. But it's funny how that is. And then when I talk to Larry. Because Larry, if Larry was right in this class, you wouldn't know him different from anyone else. Except he might look humble. Larry knows how to conversate. He knows the ways of life. He is just a raging alcoholic. And he can go for a while. And then he just is completely self-destructive. And you could knock at his door. He got a place to stay. We helped him get a place to stay. He's right there. Sorry, sorry, there's someone in that And he, he's not going to answer. He is not going to answer the door. And so there he is, 
And finally, you know what's going to happen. He's going to lose his job. And so after all, he was with them uh, for more than six months, probably eight months, and it wasn't alcohol that, that cost his job because of some particular reasons with the employer. It was he smoked pot. He got caught for smoking pot on the job. They can figure a way to drink on the job. Smoking pot, the one guy, the employer doesn't like that. So he lost his job, lost his place to live, and he is, was back homeless. And this is a long period of time. And it's like, Larry, bring your stuff over to our house. You can eat at our house. You can, you, can, um, you can wash your clothes. And you can shower. Well, finally I said to him, Larry, what the F are you going to do? And I said to myself, I can't even believe I said that. I was so upset, not at him, but for him. Because I have no judgment for Larry. I love Larry. I know who Larry is. But what are you going to do, Larry? You have no resources. You're out of everything. Please. Larry, you had a job. You had your wife. You had your daughter. You have money. You've got talent. What are we going to do? And finally, he came over one day and he said, I got to do something. So right now, Larry is at the Union Gospel Mission in Portland. And he can stay there for the first six months, which is a, um, a recovery period. First two weeks are blackout. Can't do nothing. They got a thrift store. Then the next uh, six months is a discipleship program. And then the next year, is a uh, leadership program. He can stay there two years. Guess what I'm hoping for? <clears throat> I hope he stays there a long time. But being that that situation was as it is, I've got a backup plan. Have you ever heard of crossing over the Jordan? He's down in Santa Rosa. Barney Cargill, who comes here often, he 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 teaches. Uh, he teaches. Uh, he's a chaplain there. And so that's also another program. So as soon as we were privileged to get him into that one program, it took a number of weeks to get him in there. He had to go through an interview over the phone. He had to do an application. Uh, and then we got him up there. And we had a lady in our church that um, she's a recovering uh, drug user. And um, she took him up. Uh, I was going to take him up on a Friday. I wanted him up on a Tuesday. He only take people from 9 to 1. I couldn't put him on a bus because the bus didn't land there and I didn't want him standing in the streets of Portland by himself uh, a night. And so she took him up, so he's been there ever since. And he's got a chance. He's got a chance. He's got a chance. So those are my uh, two top homeless experiences in this last year of, of uh, trying to help someone get off the streets. And remember, I started this class by saying our town is very small. So this is not a Seattle situation. This is not a camp like Brother Ramsey's talking about. This is a very isolated situation in a small community. And both of them I knew for years. So I'm not this vast expert on how to work with the homeless. But I would say that the things that I know is you've got to just listen. And that is so huge when you're 
dealing with homelessness and just find out what the situation is if they will. And sometimes that takes a bunch of meals before they talk to you. It just takes time. Now, um, by the way, for you, for you young ladies, in our park, there's lots of ladies that are um, walking around. And boy, as a lady, I'd be a little nervous, especially with dusk and early morning, especially at dusk. Uh, one guy, you know, the cops in our town, well, put it this way, our, our, our youth minister is Myrtle Creek police officer. So that's how small the town is. So he knows all the names, he knows all the situations. So obviously if you're a girl, you want to work in a group with other people. At least in our community, you'd want to do that as a part. Wouldn't be a good situation for ladies. But huge is listening, spend the time being a good listener, finding out the story and what to do. And then make connections. And this is huge, to make connections with people. For example, our Tai Chi people are there three times a week with me, we have anywhere from 15 to 25 people, and they'll say to me, Dan, there's a homeless person you need to go talk to. <laughs> well, I try to bring one of them across. If I bring a lady, obviously she comes to me, but there are guys there, and a lot of them are recovering alcoholics in our Tai Chi class. So I try to make connections, and try to connect as many people, because you don't, you need to be cautious, but in a public setting where there's people around, you don't need to be afraid. I don't think so. If you can run, you can run away from a homeless person if, that, if you need to do that. But most of them, they're, they're not, they're not going to do that. Otherwise, they've been kicked out of our park. It's a small town. They'll get kicked out of our town if they're causing problems. They will. And then the resources that are available for people, because a lot of them, whether or not it's self-inflicted, just like many of the problems we have in our own life are self-inflicted, there are so many resources to help people who are mentally disabled, whether it's drug use or whether it's alcohol, whether they need food stamps, whether they need uh, disability, whether they need social security, and you need to get connected to the people that can make that happen. And that's been helpful for me. That's been really helpful. And that includes the DMV, that includes social security, that includes UCAN, that includes the Roseburg Rescue Mission, that includes the Myrtle Creek Police Department, because a number of our policemen, they obviously have hearts for, um, for the people, because they don't want to, because as you saw in that video, Seattle is dying. If you, Jim, have you seen that video? Not yet. Okay, see, Seattle is dying? That is worth seeing, because they're saying in that video that basically 100% of the people that are homeless are addicted to some form of drug or alcohol. I don't know seems to be too much. But you can watch the video. It's very well done, the video. And they are providing solutions, but the politicians in that community are telling the police not to. You see, Myrtle Creek pays $90 a day for a person from Myrtle Creek to be in Roseburg, Douglas County Correctional Facility. The taxpayers pay $90 a day for a person to be taken to jail and incarcerated overnight. So guess what the Myrtle Creek police do not want to do? They don't want to put them in jail because the city council, you know what I mean? There's how, how much do you want to pay? Our town is paying over a million dollars for police every year. Boop, 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 boop. Now, that's nothing. Douglas County, $16 million for public safety, and the property taxes of Douglas County doesn't even pay the sheriff department, let alone building, planning, all these other services. 
It's a big controversy. What do you do? Because of a revolving door, you actually need to get help. And that's where the churches can come in. And then it takes a great deal of persistence because you cannot get a person off the streets overnight because they'll just end up right back there. Douglas County Correctional, I was chaplain there for 17 years from 1991 to 07. And 85% uh, of the people are revolving door in Douglas County Correctional Facility. Drugs, alcohol, drugs, alcohol, drugs. I, went, I was privileged to work through f uh, five uh, uh, sergeants who were in charge of the jail. Some are, were personal friends. And so it's the same old story. And so you gotta provide ways, at least avenues, if they'll take them. And sometimes it just takes a long time for a person, and of course some of them will die, they'll go to the hospital and they'll die of liver failure or diabetes or something will get them because they just never do get um, a handle on their addiction. Okay, so let's, let's, let's finish up. You, you know that story about the uh, seashore where a young girl was walking along the beach upon which thousands of starfish had been washed up during a terrible storm, and when she came to eat starfish, she would pick it up throw it back into the ocean. People watched her with amusement. She'd been doing this for some time when a man approached her and said, little girl, why are you doing this? Look at the beach. You can't save all these starfish. You can't begin to make a difference. And that girl seemed crushed, suddenly deflated. After a few moments, she bent down, picked up another starfish, and hurled it as far as she could into the ocean. Then she looked at that man and she said, I made a difference with that one. And that's really what it is. Make a difference with your Larrys, with your Joes, maybe Joshua. We don't know yet, uh, and so the story. And Wendy and I love this movie, the um, the uh, Fourth Wise Man. And here's the end of it. And we love this. It's a story about a fictional story, based after a book about the Fourth Man, who didn't. Leave, he left uh, a period of time years after the three wise men left, and he left with a pearl, a diamond, and a ruby to go follow after the star, which was still in the sky. And everyone scoffed at him. He got another guy to come with him his servant. And so they followed and everywhere they go, they miss Jesus. Everywhere they go, he misses Jesus. Just barely. Barely. Yeah. And then he finds these people, finds a leper colony. And they just so messed up, he ends up staying a few years there. And helping them. And helping them. And then, and, then, and then finally, they're so low, so he ends up giving the ruby. And then he finds another group of people. He ends up giving the diamond. And all of his years. And so finally he makes it to Jerusalem and his health is shot. And this is right afterwards, and uh, this, I'll close with this, obviously. So, Jesus has been crucified, he's missed that. He's given away all his possessions. This is uh, done by Martin Sheen, too. Homeless, you took me in. Oh, not so, my Savior. 
I never saw you hungry nor thirsty. I never clothed you. I never brought you into my home. I've never seen you until now. Whenever you did these things for the least of my brothers, you did them for me. lectureship time, I'm very grateful to be honored to uh, share something from our little town of Southern Oregon, and I'm just grateful for each person here, and I pray that the heart of Jesus will be expressed through us to be good listeners, to be affirmers, uh, to love people without judgment, and to, if we're given an opportunity, maybe to help one person um, make a difference with one word we say today, but especially in our communities with the, the broken as Susie reminded me today, the, the broken hallelujah, because we're all that person. And so God, help us to go forth today and when we go back to our house to find ways to make a difference, um, whether alongside others or maybe we know someone that we can make a difference with, especially someone that's living on the streets and is broken and um, use us. We are your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Thank you so much for coming to the class. Susie, clap.